0: ellen weatherford
1: and christian weatherford
0: and this is us we're here with just the zoo of us your favorite animal review podcast where we rate and review your favorite species of animals out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness ingenuity and aesthetics
1: we are not zoological experts but we still try to keep it 100 (laughs) percent
0: yeah we do (laughs)
1: Is that still a thing?
0: Yeah, you know, I don't think it is. <laughs> if it's made it to us, then it's certainly not a thing anymore.
1: So we try to keep things factual and true as to, to the best of our abilities.
0: Yeah, we do a lot of research to prepare for the show, so we make sure that you're, we're giving you good stuff.
1: But uh, let us know if we missed the mark.
0: Yeah, at Christian Weatherford.
1: <laughs> <laughs> My um, very active Twitter account.
0: You have what? <laughs> Eight, nine followers?
1: <laughs> it's more than that. <laughs> Listen, I lurk the Twitter.
0: You have what, eight, nine tweets?
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Please direct all negativity towards Christian Weatherford.
1: The managed inbox. <laughs>
0: yes. The highly monitored inbox of Christian <laughs> Weatherford. Uh, you know what we haven't mentioned on the podcast yet? The Yeti. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I was talking more like update wise. What's that? Is that we're having a baby.
1: We haven't talked about that. yet? No. <laughs> oh no. We haven't.
0: Uh, well, we've mentioned it on on like our socials and stuff like sure. that, but I don't think that we've actually said it on the air. So yeah, we're having a baby. <laughs>
1: Y'all, we're like thirty three weeks in starting tomorrow. It's- <laughs> (laughs) It's very close.
0: (laughs) So uh, in early November, I'm due to have a baby. And uh, at that point, don't worry, (laughs) I have stockpiled a ton of awesome guest episodes. So we will still have new content to be putting out, but you won't hear Christian's voice for a while.
1: I'll still be there, though, somewhere. He
0: will be. We'll just be very, very busy cuddling our newborn <laughs> but don't worry if you see like a ton of guest episodes start going up in either late october or early november uh i have not murdered christian <laughs> he is not buried in our backyard he's just being a good dad
1: <laughs> <laughs> that hole would be massive
0: Well, we got a pond back there
1: yeah, well it'll be the fatal flaw of my cargo shorts because of all the rocks you can fit in
0: oh no you've been watching too much true crime while i've been (laughs) which i turn on and then fall asleep to
1: (laughs) sending a message all right babe what you got for us this week
0: okay so this week i'm first so this week i put up a poll on social media for this animal for me to talk about this week the poll was between the canada goose and the common pigeon so a total of 462 votes were cast.
1: That's so many.
0: That's very many. People had a lot of opinions. And the pigeon won by four votes.
1: Wow. Yes,
0: it was a margin of four between the <laughs> polls on Twitter and Facebook. I really wanted to dunk on Canada geese because I have a lot of feelings about them, but that I guess will be saved for a later episode.
1: We shall see.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> So this week I'm talking about the pigeon. The scientific name is Columba Livia. This was requested via email by Phoebe Demiger. I'm so sorry if I mispronounced your last name, Phoebe. Very cool. Yes. Specifically because the pigeon is such a common everyday animal, like Uh one of those ones that you see all the time. Phoebe mentioned that she was thinking, oh, like I see this animal every day. I don't really know very much about it. So I'm getting my information from the Cornell Lab's website, allaboutbirds.org.
1: Been there a couple times.
0: Yeah. That's a that's a common favorite. Um, and some other studies that I will cite as they come up. Okay. So if you've never seen a pigeon.
1: Paint me, paint me a word picture.
0: <laughs> if you've never seen a pigeon, they're about a foot tall or thirty centimeters. Uh-huh. They are this is like a medium sized bird. They're not huge, but they're not tiny either. Sure. Kind of chunky, a little bit.
1: Yeah, they got a little width there.
0: Yeah, a little heft to Mm. them. They are native to Europe, Northern Africa, and Southwestern Asia, but they have been introduced all over the world. And by now, they're everyday sites, particularly in areas occupied by humans, like urban areas, farms, stuff like that. Where you see heavy human activity, you will see pigeons.
1: Were they purposely introduced?
0: Well, I mean, yes, in the sense that they were domesticated Uh and then brought into these areas, but then they escaped and became feral.
1: I want to hear more about that. Yes, you will. Don't worry.
0: (laughs) So outside of people-heavy zones, they like to live on rocky cliffs, Um, like in the areas where they're native to. This is actually the reason why one of their other common names is the rock pigeon or the rock dove. Their taxonomic family is called Columbidae. This is the family of pigeons and doves. You might be wondering, what's the difference between a pigeon and a dove? There's none. (laughs) There's no difference. (laughs) Small family. (laughs) (laughs) You might think that, but there are 344 species of pigeons and doves. Well,
1: I guess I'll just eat those words.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But what I mean is that there's no consistency in what determines whether they are referred to as a pigeon or a dove. Oh, okay. In general, like doves are a little smaller, but that's literally it. Huh. Like even this pigeon is sometimes called like a rock dove. Okay. Uh so there are also subspecies of this pigeon, this rock pigeon in different regions all over the world and then there's a domesticated subspecies um that has become the feral domesticated subspecies huh yeah kind of like it's kind of like cats you know where like you have domesticated cats but then there's feral domesticated cats
1: what was the purpose of their domestication oh
0: i'll I'll get into it i'm gonna get into it soon
1: okay
0: so with such a wide range of habitats they can be found with a really wide variety of colors and markings so the one that you and i are probably most familiar with and I would guess probably most people listening, but maybe not everybody, um, is the type that is this light bluish gray color Mm -hmm. all over and then they have black bands across their wings Mm -hmm. but you can also see them in these darker shades without bands where they're like a darker blue gray color they also come in rust red colors yeah they come with spots and even some of them will be pied where there's like they are kind of like a cookies and cream sort of like they'll have like splashes of black and white Mm -hmm. on them so wide variety of colors that these pigeons can come in they have patches of iridescent feathers on their necks right so when you see them in the right light basically their necks look like they're shimmering like blue and purple and green it's very colorful and striking (laughs) it's very neat so yeah that's what a pigeon looks like if you've never seen one I find it unlikely that you haven't seen a pigeon.
1: I don't know. If you don't live in an urban setting. Yeah. In the Mm -hmm. United States, I should say.
0: Like I was, we live in kind of a suburban area Mm -hmm. and we don't see pigeons typically. If we were to go downtown, we would see them. Sure. But that's like 30 minutes away Mm -hmm. and we don't really get very many pigeons out where we live. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, for our first category for rating the pigeon, this is effectiveness, and this is your first time joining us. Effectiveness is physical adaptations that let an animal do a good job of the things that it is trying to do in its life. It is trying to not die, do good at eating stuff. (laughs) I'm going to give the pigeon a 9 out of 10 for effectiveness. Very good. So the first thing I want to talk about is their navigation abilities. You may have heard about this.
1: Just like, I guess, in birds in general, but...
0: Okay, the pigeons are special. Okay. (laughs) Pigeons are famous for their ability to reliably find their way home, even over very long distances. So they've been recorded flying home from over 1,100 miles or 1,800 kilometers away. Uh, The leading theory is that they're able to detect the earth's magnetic field mm-hmm. and actually like use that to navigate they're kind of almost like gpsing their way home with <laughs> so, with something in their body sure. so the big mystery is like what is it in their body that's letting them do that that has been a very elusive piece of information gotcha. which was very frustrating for me because that was what i wanted to figure out was like <laughs> what is going on in their body that lets them do this So for a while, it was believed that these iron-rich cells in their upper beak Hmm. were... Somehow showing them the way, almost acting like a compass, because they had these cells in their beaks that were so full of iron. Mm. They're thinking maybe that's orienting them somehow. But in 2012, it was shown that these cells full of iron, they were macrophages. And what they were actually doing was recycling iron through the blood. Mm. So it was actually their immune system that that was working for no signal oh yeah so turns out it wasn't that so the next theory was that they were able to hone in with their inner ear which had magnetite in it so there's magnetite like highly magnetic substance is
1: it a metal in their inner
0: ear yeah okay so that makes sense right like there's magnets in their ears sure yeah (laughs) like that must be it magnets but in January of 2019, a study was published in Current Biology titled, No Evidence for a Magnetite-Based Magnetoreceptor in the Legina? I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's the thing in their inner ear that was thought to be sure. the thing that was letting them navigate. Uh, so it basically said that if the inner ear is responsible for the pigeon's ability to navigate, the magnetite was not involved. <laughs> it was not related. I never so, tested that. It was very complicated. I'm so sorry. You can read the study if you'd like to, but I, mean, I had a difficult time reading it. I get it. I kind of got the idea of it, the, of what they were going for. True. So they do suggest that the inner ear may be instead relying on electromagnetic induction, but that's to be seen. That was published in January of 2019. And I'm, I'm oh. so sorry. That is the most recent study I can find
1: pretty recent it's
0: pretty recent and I cannot find anything since then so if you're out there listening and you have better more up-to-date info please feel free to hit me up that was all I could find so I say all that to say it's still kind of mysterious how
1: well and that's only one part of the puzzle right because yeah great you can tell which which direction magnetic north is that's Mm -hmm. one step (laughs) yes
0: yeah so that's not the only way they navigate obviously they are also taking other cues from the environment. So like Mm. visual landmarks, smells, sounds, stuff like that. I did dock them a point because they're actually kind of easy to confuse. It seems like if you take one pigeon from one roost and it gets home, another pigeon from a roost that might be like half a mile away or so would not be able to make it home from like the same drop-off point. Hmm. Yeah. So there, it seems like there's so much variability in the cues that they're taking that it's actually kind of easy to throw them off. (laughs) 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 Like it's a very, very, very impressive ability and we still aren't sure how they're doing it, but it's not a perfect system. It's not the most reliable navigation method ever. Um, so this ability to find their way home made them the go-to method of communication for humans over long distances by carrying messages that were tied to their legs okay. back to their home nest when they were released. So you did have to transport the pigeon, oh, okay. right? So you could take the pigeon to whatever place, like, you know, say I wanted to send a letter to Atlanta you know, I would have to get a pigeon that had come from Atlanta yeah. and then I would give my me- my message to that pigeon and then let that pigeon go and it would fly back okay. home to Atlanta.
1: So this does not work the way it's sometimes depicted.
0: Right. <laughs> um, it, some pigeons were able to make small back and forth trips. Okay. Um, like some pigeons were trained specifically to go back and forth between two places, but it would be like within the same city. Like okay. you couldn't get them to go, you know, like between cities or something like that.
1: This is not like game of thrones ravens like right <laughs>
0: i think the ravens and game of thrones were like this idea just like amplified
1: sure. like go send this to grandma <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah you couldn't just tell the pigeon where to go they would only go to one place sure but they would go to that one place from anywhere you took them so interesting yeah
1: I'm trying to think of a modern day equivalent of that but i'm sure there is one i just can't think of one at the email <laughs> well it's like it's like taking like starting s- at some place taking a token from that place, mm-hmm. going wherever, and then being able to send a message based on that token back to the original, like where it originated from. Right,
0: but nowhere else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so at the time, when we had no other long-distance communication options, it was incredible. Right. <laughs> Very useful. So this practice has been recorded as far back as in Mesopotamian cuneiform tablets. Wow. And Egyptian hieroglyphics. Huh. So... They've been using pigeons for a long time. (laughs) Interesting. Yes. And it was prevalent kind of throughout history up until the introduction of faster and more efficient methods of communication. Like,
1: you know, the telegraph and stuff like that. Yeah, I was thinking that was probably the first one.
0: Yeah. And then it just kind of phased out from there. Like, it wasn't important anymore. But so you were asking why they would have domesticated pigeons. It's for messaging.
1: I was guessing that or maybe food but <laughs> <laughs> some people i mean
0: people do eat pigeons yeah sure. it's fine you can do that um the next thing that i want to talk about for their effectiveness is that some pigeons not all of them have these white feathers around the base of their tail which is called their rump rather than dark gray like the rest of their body right so their whole body is like a gray color but then their butt is white bright white. Huh. So, what's interesting is that these pigeons with the white butts were studied and shown to have much, much better chances of surviving attacks from peregrine falcons. Oh. So, peregrine falcons are like a huge predator of pigeons, right? Because they're incredibly fast. They strike from above, And they're just so fast that the pigeons usually can't escape it. (laughs) So the pigeon, the peregrine falcon strikes from above. And it's thought that these bright white feathers on their butt basically give this highly contrasting target because it's bright white against dark gray. Sure. It's basically gives a target that the falcon focuses its attention on. And what that does is that it distracts the falcon. So it's looking at the pigeon's butt and it's not noticing what the pigeon is doing with its wings because its wings are that like dark gray with with, like black bands. It's not as it's not as highly contrasting. So with its wings, it's tucking and like rolling into this evasive maneuver. And the peregrine falcon hasn't noticed that the pigeon has shifted its course until after it's already moved out of the way. Okay, And then the falcon misses its strike.
1: I guess also if the falcon is attacking from above, it's a light-colored spot on darker-colored bird against a darker-colored background, the ground.
0: Yeah, so that white spot is just providing like a spot of focus. So something people are studying right now is whether that white spot is becoming more common in pigeons because it's helping them get away from falcons because sure. like i said not all pigeons have it but it's very beneficial to the pigeon yeah so now people are kind of starting to keep an eye on like over time are we gonna see more pigeons with this white patch right they're kind of like evolving <laughs> to keep up with the falcons
1: well, i like the you know the ones that have the patch are more likely to be around to reproduce right
0: yeah that's natural selection happening in real time and we're watching it. <laughs>
1: high speeds. Yes, at very <laughs> high
0: speeds. And pigeons can be pretty fast, actually. They they have a decent like flight speed, but there's like a sub faction, I guess, of domesticated pigeons that were bred for racing. Pigeon racing
1: (laughs) is like a whole
0: thing. I'm not going to talk too much about it because it actually gets kind of dark. It doesn't always work out very well for the bird. So I'm not going to talk too much about it. Just that pigeons have the capability of going quite fast. Okay. The last thing that I gave them for effectiveness is that they have a really flexible diet. (laughs) So in urban areas, they eat anything pretty much, that will fit in their mouth. They (laughs) eat popcorn, they eat breadcrumbs, they eat junk food, potato chips. They don't care. If they can pick it up, they will eat it. Um, Outside of cities, they prefer seeds and grains and kind of like maybe the occasional like little invertebrate or something like that. Mm -hmm. They're pretty chill with what they eat. Sure. So, I don't know. I think having a little bit of generalistic tendencies is a good thing.
1: You know, with that, you know, they're starting to shape up as an animal that does well in urban human populations.
0: Yeah, they have specced extremely highly into like every single skill that will allow them to really thrive in a human environment, <laughs> um, which I'm actually about to talk about. Uh, this is ingenuity. Okay the section in which we rate an animal on its behavioral adaptations or things that allow it to solve puzzles or overcome obstacles using clever behaviors. I'm giving the pigeon a full 10 out of 10 for ingenuity. Wow. This is really where the pigeon takes off. I'm sorry for (laughs) the (laughs) Yeah. It, it pops off for the pigeon in the cognitive department and pigeons don't have particularly large brains. Not sure. even for birds. They just don't. Okay. Pretty small brains. But the thing about bird brains is that bird brains are denser in neurons than mammal brains. Mm. So their brains are very, very small, but they have lots going on in them. Sure. The pigeon is no exception. Pigeons have amazing cognitive abilities. So, especially where they really kind of shine is in visual processing. Mm. They can see not just in color, but they can see UV ultraviolet light which humans mm-hmm. can't. And then I so I found this list of studies that were kind of like organized very nicely by a 2019 article in psychology today this was by sebastian Aucklandberg phd and it was titled the surprising neuroscience of pigeon intelligence Mm. basically listed off a whole bunch of studies showing off the intellect of pigeons the studies listed showed the ability of the pigeons to ace these surprisingly complicated tests including telling human faces apart on facial features and then they could also like generalize and tell like whether it was a face they had seen before or not based on facial features and then like between two people they had seen before they knew which one it was telling apart works of art by picasso and monet they could determine which ones were (laughs) by picasso and which ones were by monet
1: Well, Pigeon 1, Christian (laughs) 0.
0: I'm about to get to some stuff a pigeon can do that I cannot do. Okay. Um, But also, like, I will say this. Picasso and Monet are extremely different. So, like, I don't know. I feel like you could have given them something more challenging. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They can count in ascending order from 1 to 9. When shown numbers representing the numbers of one through nine, they could like interact with them in the correct order from one to nine.
1: That's interesting. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just trying to wrap my head around how they would, I guess, verify this ability, but maybe I'll just look at it on my own time.
0: (laughs) Basically, like the numbers corresponded to like the bird understood that the the number symbol corresponded to a quantity of things. And it had to like interact with those numbers in the correct order from one to nine.
1: I guess I'm wondering if, it, if that's just learning the order of a pattern versus counting, you know?
0: I don't I, I didn't dive too far into like the methods they uh-huh. used, but basically it was something that the pigeons were able to do that most other animals are not able to do. Okay, They're able to read. They can recognize words and differentiate them from random combinations of letters. Hmm. So they can look at a series of letters and understand this is a word that means something. Versus showing them like us like the same letters in a random order, mm-hmm. and they would be like, "That's not a word.
1: <laughs> Our judge for Scrabble this evening <laughs>
0: <laughs> This is the most like astonishing one to me. a twenty fifteen study in which pigeons were trained to be able to look at mammogram images and tell which tumors were benign and which were malignant, huh. Yes, they could like diagnose tumors by looking at mammogram images. (laughs) This is the one that I can't do.
1: There's some interesting parallels going on here between pigeon learning and AI learning.
0: (laughs) Really? (laughs) I don't know very much about AI learning, but I would imagine it follows some similar curves. So after being trained to recognize benign and malignant tumors, the pigeons were able to look at images that they had never seen before and tell whether the tumor was benign or malignant. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't just memorizing the images. It was like they knew what was making it that way and what was not. And they yeah, could apply it to yeah. new stuff.
1: I mean, that at a very high level, that's a lot like how some AI engines work. You'll give them like a set of pictures. Mm-hmm. And you say, which ones a person is smiling in. And then it learns what is it that they all share in common that's that says they're smiling and then you show it a picture it hasn't seen before and it doesn't have a tag and it has to decide whether or not it has a picture of someone smiling in it
0: we could just ask pigeons (laughs) we're wasting time with the computers just get the pigeons to do it they already know they can already do it so this is something, obviously, that is difficult for humans to learn. Sure. Right? Humans spend years learning how to do this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's particularly surprising that a bird with a very small brain is able to pull it off. That study, by the way, was called Pigeons, Columbia, Livia, as Trainable Observers of Pathology and Radiology Breast Cancer Images. And that was by Richard Levinson, Elizabeth Krupinski, Victor Navarro, and Edward Wasserman interesting yes very cool so these kinds of like visual processing abilities are just really really useful for an animal that lives in a busy city environment right Hmm. because it's a landscape that's shaped by humans and humans are largely visual communicators right we're communicating so much with each other with visual cues so for a bird or for any animal really that's living in an area that is like dominated by humans being able to decode visual cues is really going to help you get around (laughs) so one thing that i found really funny i found an article describing that in new york city where pigeons are known to be in high numbers pigeons have been known to walk onto subways to pick up crumbs (laughs) And then they get stuck on the train when the door closes. And then what they do, they don't freak out. It's fine. They just ride the train. <laughs> they ride it to the next station. When it gets to the next stop and the door is open, they walk off and fly home. Huh. Yeah. It, like It doesn't matter where it took them. They just <laughs> go home. <laughs> Some pigeons will just do that in a cycle. Like they'll just go onto the subway, ride it to the next stop, forage at that (laughs) station, and they'll just like ride the subway around town to like forage. And then when they're done, they just fly home.
1: (laughs) It's like, I gotta meet Frank in uptown to forage, but I don't wanna fly there. (laughs) (laughs) Because
0: when they're like, you know, they're taking the train, first of all, they're conserving energy. Second of all, (laughs) they're getting to like hit up all these stops on the way. So it's like more opportunities (laughs) to stop and eat. And then at the end of the day, when they're done, they just fly home. They're they're commuting, basically, is what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Very clever birds. I would be
1: so tickled just sitting on a, like a train and just seeing a, a little pigeon just...
0: Oh, look it up. Walk, There's walk so, so, so many like pictures and videos and stuff of pigeons just chilling on the train. <laughs> and they're just, they're standing there and they're so used to it, right? Like, they're just like, it's me yeah (laughs) of course they didn't pay maybe they should start making them pay fair (laughs) i don't know but yeah pigeons are really learning to use our resources to their own advantage
1: that's (laughs) smart
0: i know i'm so proud of them honestly now to talk about a couple of things that are not that are behavioral about them but not about all of this awesome cool insane stuff that they can do they are mostly monogamous they do mate in pairs for life Aww. now that being said their lifespan's not that long sure but <laughs> they do largely mate monogamously that's it's not an unbreakable bond <laughs> all right things happen sometimes but for the most part they mate with one partner like permanently what's,
1: what's that lifespan do you, did you...
0: it's like six years about i think okay. yeah, like five six years okay. not not terribly long so their partnership is also very cooperative. So the males build the nests and then help incubate the eggs after mm-hmm. the female has laid them. And what's kind of cool about that is that they actually build their nests in really cleverly secluded places. So this is why art, like a very common question that people ask is, why don't I ever see baby pigeons? Sure, You never see them because the pigeons are so smart about where they make their nests. They hide them yeah. in yeah. very good places. So they hide them in abandoned buildings or up under bridges or just like somewhere where you're not gonna see them yeah which is probably a good thing because the babies are really ugly
1: oh no the baby
0: pigeons are not cute (laughs)
1: it's
0: not a cute baby bird lots of baby birds aren't cute this is one of them Yeah. That's all I had for ingenuity. For aesthetics, I give them a 9 out of 10. I'm specifically thinking about the gray ones with the blue feathers. Okay. So they have those iridescent feathers. The feathers on the necks of the gray pigeons appear as all of these beautiful shimmering colors. And that had me thinking about how they look like that. Like why they look like that. Sure. So the iridescence is caused by structures in a part of the feather called the barbule. So if you look at a feather, there's this central tube piece that's called the roches. And then off of the roches branch, the smaller pieces that are called barbs. And then off of the barbs split even smaller little parts. They're called barbules. Sure. This is kind of what makes the barbs stick together because they're kind of overlaying each other. Mm -hmm. You know, they're kind of like interlocking almost. The barbules are made out of keratin and melanophores. So there's melanophores inside. So those are cells that produce melanin, which is the same pigment that like our bodies produce and mammal bodies produce basically there's those melanophores, but then layers of keratin on the outside.
1: Yeah. So this is like what fingernail kind of material, right? So it's,
0: it's both it's like keratin and the melanophores on the inside of it. So they work together to refract light kind of like a prism Mm. where depending on what angle you're looking at it from the light is reflected differently because it's passing through the keratin like in varying levels of thickness okay, from what, depending on what angle you're viewing it from. Okay, So like if you're looking at it from one angle, it looks green, but looking at the exact same spot, if you just move over a little bit, you're now at a different angle and now it looks purple. Mm -hmm. So that's how the iridescent feathers work. (laughs) It's a structural color. It's not caused by like a color from a pigmentation or something. It's, it's because of the physical structure of the feather. Right. Makes sense. So, yeah, it's pretty neat. I like. It's hard for me to say that. Like, I, I know that they get a lot of negativity and a lot of people are very annoyed by them. Um, and it's hard for me to say like whether that is a deserved uh, reputation or not because, like I said, we do not live in an area that is that is heavily populated with pigeons. So. Right. The interactions I have had with them have been very brief. And, you know, usually they're just walking down the street and that's it. So I don't have the shared experience of somebody who maybe has stronger feelings about (laughs) pigeons, but they're really amazing. They're really cool. They're capable of really awesome things and they're insanely smart and we don't give them enough credit for that.
1: I would argue that they're less annoying than Canadian geese.
0: Okay, we'll have to get into that on a different episode because I have big feelings. Okay. That's it. That's the pigeon.
1: Thanks, hon. That was very interesting. Thank you. And I, for one, welcome our new pigeon overlords.
0: (laughs) They can just take it at this point. (laughs) Just have it.
1: We now have a breadcrumb-based economy.
0: (laughs) Our cities. You know what? I think we've had a good run, but (laughs) clearly, maybe it's time we hand the keys over. Sure. Before we move on to our next animal this week I would like to say a thank you To our patrons on Patreon Y'all keep us going And help us continue making This show so that we can Donate our ad revenue to Conservation efforts all over the world This week I want to thank our patrons Jacob Jones, April Khmick Brianna Feinberg, Jacob Schick Vikram Baliga, Brandon Everfolly Britt Vickstrom, Dalton Weeks Julie Gilson, Christina Sanders Patricia Morgan, Paul Chomo Randall Beeman Sarah Peterson and the Jungle Gym Queen thank you so much y'all so Christian what animal do you have this week
1: this week I actually referenced our list of requested animals
0: it's a very long list you guys (laughs) I appreciate y'all so
1: much (laughs) I blew the digital dust off of it and I picked the banded sea crate
0: when you say crate
1: it's a type of snake
0: it's not a box we're not talking about boxes
1: K-R-A-I-T. crate okay. Scientific name, Laticauda colubrina. Hoping I pronounced that correctly.
0: Sounds great. Just say it with confidence.
1: <laughs> it could also be, I guess, Laticauda I don't think calibrina. that's not it. That sounds cooler, that's though. It. No, it doesn't. <laughs> so, also known as the yellow-lipped sea crate and the colubrine sea crate. Interesting. Yes. Okay. This species was submitted by the Jungle Jim Queen as well as Madison Smith.
0: Thank you, friends.
1: I'll be getting my information from Animal Diversity Web, found at animaldiversity.org, as well as some specific articles, which I will cite as I use them.
0: No spoilers.
1: None. <laughs> it seems that's every article I've ever used and seen. It's just the title is interesting fact <laughs> in one sentence. <laughs> but I guess is the point. But
0: yes, it's supposed to be that way. They do that on purpose.
1: <laughs> so jumping right into it is the basic info of these Wet snakes. These are a semi aquatic reptile. Oh. Yes. Not fully aquatic. Not fully aquatic. Okay. So their adult size averages a length of 125 centimeters or 49 inches, and females are larger than males. Where they can be found are coral reefs spread out through the Indo Australian archipelago, the Bay of Bengal, Thailand, Malaysia, and Singapore. Uh, so they're in warm tropical climates. But they are not found in the Atlantic and Caribbean Oceanic regions. Huh. Yeah. Darn. Mm -hmm. We
0: wouldn't see them.
1: So really just the Western Pacific. So not even the California part of the Pacific Ocean. Okay. Yep. Uh, So I found their taxonomy pretty interesting.
0: That's the shock.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know. I usually find that pretty dry. But they belong to the family Elapidae, which are venomous snakes that have hollow, permanently erect short fangs in the front of their mouths. This is actually the first snake we're discussing that's part of this family. Okay. Other snakes in that family are things like death adders, cobras, sea snakes, like we mentioned, other crates. So there are terrestrial crates, not just oceanic Mm. crates. Oh. And also the coral snake.
0: Oh, we have these.
1: (laughs) So this is one of, if not the only snake of that family. That we'll find in North America. I think mm. there's a particular sea snake that is also in that family, but it's on the West Coast. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's the one we would be familiar with.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can find coral snakes around here. hmm
1: So they're separate from the vipers, for example, which is what we, when we talked about the Gaboon viper. Mm-hmm. And also uh, the family that the water belongs to, which, what was that called? I don't remember the now. Chonky boys. Yeah. <laughs> it's a different family, but that family is actually pretty is pretty closely related to this one. Okay. Uh, the genus that they belong to, Laticauda, contains the various sea crates.
0: So there's mm-hmm. a bunch of sea crates. Yeah. It's not just this one.
1: Correct. So for effectiveness, I'll give them a 9 out of 10.
0: That's pretty good.
1: Yeah. Just kind of jumping right into it. The first and foremost, of course, is their venom.
0: (laughs) I know this is what you like.
1: Yes. So something that sea snakes and I suppose crates are uh, semi-famous for is the potency of their venom. Though these guys, they have a neurotoxin, which causes paralysis in muscles, including the diaphragm.
0: Mm, Oh, no. That's (laughs) one you don't want to be paralyzed. So if
1: that muscle is paralyzed, you cannot breathe.
0: Right. This is the one that like pushes...
1: It, your... it changes the pressure of of that cavity, which causes uh, your lungs to expand.
0: You do not want that to be relaxed.
1: Nope. <laughs> or at least not all, always relaxed. Right. So, and these guys also have an unfortunate false myth about them. That they can't open their mouths large enough to bite humans. Oh, <laughs> that is false, 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 false. Oh, no.
0: what was that? What does that even mean?
1: I don't know. Because <laughs> here's another thing: Snoke's are fairly well known Snokes? for Snoke's. Yeah, you know <laughs> the Star Wars sequel villain. <laughs> voiced by Andy Circus. Um, <laughs> so here's another thing snakes are fairly well known for is how big they can open their mouths to swallow prey whole.
0: That's their whole thing that they do.
1: This one is no exception. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk about how potent that venom is. Their subcutaneous LD50 in mice is 0.45 milligrams per kilogram.
0: You're going to have to walk me through. I
1: for sure will.
0: Okay, thank you. But
1: just a quick note. I've talked about this before and it was actually about the red velvet ant.
0: Mmm, okay. Th- thought
1: it was about one of the other snakes, but it wasn't. It was about the red velvet ant.
0: Mmm, okay. Yeah. We're bringing it back. Round mm-hmm. two, baby.
1: So LD50, and you'll see this written as capital L, capital D, with a subscript 50 followed afterwards. Uh, that describes the lethal dose required that kills 50% of subjects described in amounts of toxin per kilogram of specimen. And that's usually that value is also specified with the species that it was used on or studied in and also the delivery route of the toxin. Mm. So what, what I just said, you know, subcutaneous LD50 in mice of 0.45 milligrams per kilogram. What that means is that 0.45 milligrams of venom delivered subcutaneously. So below the skin for every kilogram of mouse specimen mass killed 50% of those specimens okay yes so i'm not sure about the how ethical this <laughs> this uh, method of study is mm,
0: this sounds very mad scientist it
1: is but i figure we have these stats so we might as well use them
0: it i mean it's better than letting them go to waste i guess for
1: sure <laughs> And I'm getting this information from an article titled, Toxicity of the Venom of the Sea Snake, Latakauta Calabrina, with observations on a Malay folk cure.
0: Malay? Malay, yes.
1: As as in some uh, culture of uh, Malaysia.
0: Malay just sounds like... Super Smash Brother, Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I'm trying. And that was by Harold A. Levery in the May 1969 issue of the Toxicon Journal. Uh, another part of that journal, as described in the title, was seeing if a plant-based folk cure for the species venom worked in mice. It did not. Well,
0: <laughs> all right. Well, you tried.
1: Yep. So that's its venom. Pretty potent. Real strong. Mm-hmm.
0: Does it kill people?
1: It definitely can. Oh. <laughs> but here's... Well, I'll come back to that. Okay, all right. We'll talk about ingenuity.
0: We'll table that for now. Yeah.
1: So just know that the venom itself, fairly lethal.
0: Okay. Do not...
1: If administered.
0: This is a spicy noodle.
1: (laughs) The next point I want to talk about for effectiveness is how they're semi-aquatic. So this means they spend time in both land and water. And what's interesting is they are still capable of land movement, which is not the case in sea snakes, for example.
0: Oh, sea snakes can't get around on the land? Not
1: very good, at least. (laughs) (laughs) So they can still move across land. They spend about 25 to 50% of their time on land to mate, lay eggs, digest food, and to shed their skin.
0: Some important stuff, right? What are they going on the water for? Hunting. Oh, that makes sense. Yep. <laughs> there are lots of things in there. Yes.
1: <laughs> so their swimming ability is hampered after they feed. So they have to come back to land to digest.
0: For 30 minutes before they get back in the water?
1: <laughs> it's longer than that. But basically. <laughs> Same. <laughs> they can actually climb trees still.
0: Really? Yeah. Is nowhere safe? <laughs>
1: Uh, and what's interesting is they can sidewind through sand and substances like that.
0: Now that makes sense. If you're going to be transitioning from sea to shore, right. you're going to need to be able to get them around <laughs> on some sand. That tracks.
1: <laughs> Their water movement, they have a tail paddle. The tail kind of forms a paddle-like structure. And this is something they share with sea snakes. So they can dive up to 60 meters or nearly 200 feet.
0: That's pretty far down there. Yeah.
1: However, they do still need fresh water. Um, so that's some, that's one of the things they'll do on land is find sources of fresh water or at least maybe brackish water.
0: That's funny to me. They're like, they have to get out of the salt water to go find <laughs> fresh water. They're right. like, now I got to get out of this water, go find different water.
1: <laughs> Good water. <laughs> <laughs> Next point of effectiveness, they are oviparous, which means they lay eggs that then later hatch.
0: Mm, outside of their body. Yes. Okay.
1: As opposed to ovoviparous. Mm-hmm. So they return to the land to lay those eggs, like I mentioned. And finally, I want to talk about their perception. So they have well-developed eyesight and Jacobson's organs, which is that organ that snakes use to process odor that they pick up with their tongue.
0: Oh, so they do the little tongue flick thing. Yeah,
1: yeah. But they lack heat-sensing organs or pits, like how you'll see in uh, pit vipers or Mm. uh, lots of pythons, I think, have these too. So that wraps up effectiveness. Good stuff. It's a good snake. Yeah. So, ingenuity. Um, couldn't find a whole lot about this. So, I'm just going to go ahead and land with a uh, gentleman's six out of ten. <laughs> Courteous. <laughs> yes.
0: Six out of ten. <laughs> so,
1: the, my first point is that they're feeding specialists. And it's interesting what they eat. Oh, So they mostly eat eels.
0: Oh, that's kind of funny, actually. Noodle eating
1: smaller noodles. (laughs) I mentioned that the the females and males are of different sizes where the females are larger. So females will typically feed on larger conger eels, while males will feed on smaller moray eels.
0: Huh. Yeah. The mental image I have of a (laughs) snake eating an eel, because of the way that snakes have to eat things. Like you know, just swallowing it whole, basically. Mm -hmm. It basically just fuses into one super long, (laughs) one very, very long animal. (laughs) Yeah,
1: um, I found a video watching one eat an eel. It was actually really interesting. It was probably the fastest I've seen a snake eat something because I feel like when you see a video of a snake eating like a rat or something, it takes a while, right? But this one was pretty quick. I'm wondering if the water helps that. Yeah, Maybe. They'll they'll sometimes eat smaller fish too, but it seems to be eel is their favorite.
0: Eels are also I want to say they're kind of slippery, right? Like uh, they have some sort of slippery component. To maybe them. I don't have a whole lot of That might just be there. my assumption, <laughs> my total guess about them, sure. but I feel like they're slippery. So mm-hmm. maybe there's just like maybe they just slide down a little bit easier mm-hmm. than like a mammal or something.
1: Right. And about their relationship with eels, I want to quote the abstract of an article, which reads, Eels of the genus Gymnothorax from the Pacific are selectively preyed upon by banded sea crates, Laticula calibrina, and have been reported to sustain massive doses of sea crate venom without ill effect. By contrast, the present study found that Gymnothorax waringa from the Caribbean where no sea snakes occur, are sensitive to sea crate venom, with doses as low as 0.01 milligrams dry weight of venom per kilogram wet weight of eel, resulting in signs of envenomation, and doses as small as 0.1 mg per kilogram proving to be lethal. These observations suggest that the resistance of pacific gymnothorax to sea crate venom results from co-evolution of predator and prey.
0: Okay. Rather
1: than from a general hardiness of gymnothorax. Ge- of and that is from the article titled Resistance of Eels Gymnothorax to the Venom of Sea Crates Laticula Calibrina, a test of Coevolution" by Harold Heatwell and Judy Powell in the May 8th, 1998 issue of the Toxicon Journal.
0: So the eels that live where the crates are. Yes. Are in an arms race with the crates. <laughs> You know, I've I've heard of other animals going through this sort of back and forth, mm-hmm. where one of them is venomous, the other one is preyed upon by the venomous thing, and they just go back and forth between one just develops stronger immunity to the venom, and then the other just develops stronger venom, right. and the other one... And they just keep going back and forth <laughs> like that until you get these, like just ridiculous like very highly potent highly concentrated venom Mm -hmm. because it's having to take out prey that has now developed such a strong immunity to the venom that it has to get stronger so like both of them end up with these just absolutely off the chart insane measurements Mm -hmm. because they've been competing with each other so you mentioned that like how how potent the venom of the sea crate is like i'm wondering if that's in response to their prey becoming more resistant (laughs) to it right because they're like well shoot now it's not working anymore we got to make more venom
1: (laughs) and then they run into something that isn't used to it and it's overkill so yeah then they're like well
0: all right that was a little much Mm -hmm. (laughs) but you would rather your prey be too dead than not dead enough
1: Mm -hmm. yeah for sure (laughs) now we'll say these are not the most venomous snake in the world no Uh, no no they're about a magnitude or two less toxic than the most venomous one. Um, I believe is the inland taipan found in Australia.
0: Spicy boy.
1: Yep. So that that all was just very interesting and not really related to the to the crate itself. I just thought it was interesting.
0: It's cool. I, I love stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. I love to see the relationships between animals in certain places and like how they evolve in mm. response to each other. Yep. That's really cool.
1: Yep. Now, uh, I I forgot to write this down, but I came across it in my reading that suggested there's also a species of eel that has developed uh, an appearance similar to the crate. Mm. <laughs>
0: Clever. <laughs>
1: it's a, a form of mimicry, of course. Sure. So that other animals will like, oh, uh, things that look like that are venomous. I don't want to mess with that, but they don't actually have any venom. So the uh,
0: the mimic octopus does this too, doesn't it?
1: Uh oh, you know what? I think you're right. I didn't actually come across that.
0: The mimic octopus, like one of the forms it can take is where it like moves it, it like moves its legs in such a way where it mimics the like Yeah, and also its coloration. Right. It looks like that. Yeah. It has those black and white bands yep. and it moves its arms in such a way where it looks like a sea snake swimming through the water yeah. or I would imagine if they're trying to look like a venomous
1: snake. Sure. Sure. Uh, my final point for ingenuity is their own tail head mimicry.
0: Tail head mimicry.
1: So the tail is shaped and positioned to look like a second head.
0: Oh no, <laughs> you have a double ended <laughs> snake. So here's where this is
1: useful because of how they prey on things. So they they're found in coral reefs. So they're swimming in little crevices and stuff between you know rocks and such. Mm-hmm. So that leaves them vulnerable while their head you know the business end is kind of going through these crevices looking for prey. However, since the tail looks like another head, <gasps> other animals will be like, oh, don't want to mess with that. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> that's yeah. so
0: neat. So they've got a little fake out on yep. the back. Yeah. That reminds me of like moths with like eye spots.
1: But what's it? it's not that it's not that advanced, though, because it doesn't have like fake eyes or anything. It's just the general shape <laughs> and coloration. That's it.
0: It's just relying on like you not paying that close attention. <laughs>
1: Now, that being said, there are animals that prey on them. So uh, tiger sharks, there are some sea eagles that will eat them. It was even observed that a crab was eating one once.
0: Go for it. <laughs> I mean, if the, sna- if the crab can get like a good snip in yeah. before the snake can turn <laughs> around, like, there you go.
1: I mean, the snake has to breathe, too. Um, I don't know why I didn't write this down, but I believe it's it can hold its breath somewhere around 30 minutes.
0: Okay. Yeah. I mean, if it's diving down like 200 feet. Yeah. I guess you gotta hold your breath pretty long too. Which get is
1: impressive because you know, uh not a whole lot of room for lung there. It's a long oh, one, yeah. but it's
0: <laughs> what if it's just one big lung
1: in there? <laughs> I mean stomach's in there too, but you know, and I, I had said I already said my final point for ingenuity, but there was one more. Okay. So going back to uh people that do people get bitten by these things? Here's what's interesting about the, the banded sea crate. They are very, very chill. <laughs> Extremely chill.
0: Like super cool <laughs> with it.
1: Yeah. So cases of people being bitten by them are mostly fishermen that accidentally catch them in their nets and maybe pick them up and grab them without realizing what they're grabbing.
0: Mm, Okay.
1: But otherwise, they're totally chill.
0: Okay. They're good to go. They're just there for the hang.
1: So it's a case of... Venom is very toxic, but not likely to be bitten by one.
0: Sure, that makes sense.
1: Not, not, no chance.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, just don't go digging around in coral reefs like you're already not supposed to be doing. (laughs) Yeah,
1: there's several things there you don't want (laughs) to surprise.
0: Yeah, so just don't go poking around Mm -hmm. in ocean rocks yeah and you'll be all right
1: yep so you'll see video of people like just people that are scuba diving for example and they'll come across one and they'll just kind of videotape it for a while watch it do its own thing it's definitely not attacking people without cause
0: i think that's a an assumption that most people have about snakes
1: like a misconception
0: (laughs) that most people have about snakes is that it's like actively it's going to try
1: to pursue you well especially in an environment where the snake has a literal infinite number of directions it could escape in. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah like when you're on land that you're you're limited by two dimensions of movement sure. that the snake has to choose from but mm-hmm. in the water all bats are all bets are off baby
1: the bats are off too all bats <laughs> off
0: <laughs> because they can't swim
1: not very good at least um, so yeah that's ingenuity and then finally aesthetics eight
0: that's pretty good it's a good spicy noodle it's a good snake.
1: <laughs> Which oh, that reminds me, they do like most snakes have to thermoregulate. Mm. So that's another thing they would do on land. That makes up.
0: sense. Just go bask.
1: Anyway, uh, aesthetics. I think they have very fashionable stripes.
0: It's very good. Yeah.
1: Not many things can pull off vertical stripes.
0: High, high contrasting. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Black and white is very in right now. So so
1: and it's it's not quite white either. So the the lighter shades are actually more gray and light or even light blue. Ooh, yeah. pretty. So it's another one of those, what color is the dress type thing? Uh, uh, <laughs>
0: well, I think the scene crate is white and gold.
1: <laughs> but yeah, for sure, black bands uh, with that lighter coloring. And so I mentioned one of their names earlier is the yellow-lipped sea crate. That is because... Can I guess? Yeah.
0: <laughs> Do they have a yellow lip?
1: Upper lip, yes. The upper <laughs> Nailed lip. it. Um, I love descriptive names. <laughs> I th- that's that's why I chose to go with a banded sea crate first, though, because that's the more yeah. obvious thing. Like that's their whole body, <laughs> whereas the, the yellow upper lip is like just at the upper lip, and that's it. But yeah, they have that, and I think their movement in water is really interesting to watch. It's mesmerizing.
0: Mm, they got that like back and
1: forth, right? Yeah, but it's different from sidewinding in sand. It's different.
0: Yeah, it's like the like the head. Mm-hmm. Kind of stays constant, and the body like moves in a wave behind it.
1: They're very good. It's really cool. They're very agile in the water. And then finally, their conservation status is of least concern. Oh, good. However, they uh, troubles they might have have a lot to do with humans. Surprise, surprise. Because spending up to half of their time on land, and that time usually being laying eggs or digesting something they are prone to being harvested by humans. Oh, what for? <laughs> uh leather. Yeah. What? And and food. Leather? Yep. What? mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Leather? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, not like cow leather, but
0: Well, clearly snake not. Snake
1: leather. <laughs>
0: like just like their skin, I yeah, guess. Yeah.
1: Cuz the problem with that interesting design is it also makes an interesting leather product.
0: So mm. We've talked about quite a few animals like this where yeah. like their beauty ends up working against them.
1: Yeah, yeah. And of course, since these these are creatures that live on coral reefs. Whole host of issues there. Yeah. Very and, sensitive ecosystems. And
0: especially the coral reefs in the whole Indo Pacific region are are specifically not doing so great. Yeah. Lots of lots of factors working against yeah, them there.
1: Yeah. But still least concern at the okay. moment. They're doing all right. That was the Banded Sea Crate.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you to everybody who has spent your time with us this week. We really appreciate you giving us your ears and your attention, learning about animals with us.
1: It's been fun times. It
0: has been. Trust me, we are having as much fun as you are. (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: uh you can connect with us on facebook twitter or instagram just search the title of the show you will find us if you have an animal species that you would like to hear us review you can submit those to us either on our website or on social media or at my email address which is ellen at justthezooofus.com. Oh, I didn't mention this earlier, but now there is now up on our website, a Google form that you can fill out and submit. If you want to be a guest on the show, we do guest episodes with experts of various walks of life So if you have a really cool animal that you know a lot about and you want to tell us about it, just go to our website, to our contact page, fill out that form. It will get to me Um, right now. Our plates are full for 2020, but those submissions are open for guests that will be scheduled in 2021.
1: So. yeah because we'll be depleting that stock by a good bit i
0: know <laughs> we have plenty of episodes queued up right now but we're gonna go we're gonna burn through them pretty quick so what um, with
1: baby what with baby <laughs> that
0: we will be um responding to yes <laughs> uh last thing that i wanted to say was i wanted to thank louis Zong for letting us use his song adventuring off of his album b-sides it's very pleasant
1: Always enjoy listening to it.
0: I do. It's very good. Makes me happy. <laughs> Here, here's a little dose of happy for you right now.
1: Goodbye.
0: Bye.